Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, Oakley Doakley. Uh, I'm, I'm distracted, that little buzzy thing. I don't know what that is. Yeah. Anyway, um, if you've been around 6-8 for a while, you, you know that we, we oftentimes come back to certain verses in our sort of collective teaching and preaching and all that kind of stuff. And one of those verses is Romans 15, 13. And uh, Lindley was the one that when she was on staff with us a few years back, um, she really felt like the Lord was communicating this verse to us as a church. And it, and it was really... Um, uh, at the time, it really struck me, and it's, been, and it's stuck with us over these years. And uh, Romans fifteen thirteen says this, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, what a great verse that is, right? And you think about it like overflow, the natural process of filling, right, of being filled up. And, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit filling us, the Holy Spirit taking over our lives, just coming over the top, over the brim, and just pouring out over into my family and friends and my local community and out into the world. And it's not something that is necessarily forced or coerced or, or awkward at any, at, at any moment. Really, it's just an overflow of Christ in my life. It's not something I just grit down and go out and do. It is something that just naturally comes out of me. What you're filled with overflows to others. And that's really our, that's the goal of spiritual formation. That's the goal of the life of Christ is just to, to be filled with Jesus, so much with Christ that the kingdom just pours out of me, that I'm a participant in, in great and wonderful ways. Um, filled with Jesus, filled with the word of God, filled with the Holy Spirit, purified, made holy, used by God in this whole effort of, of reaching the nations with the gospel and all that kind of stuff. And Scripture throughout teaches that we are blessed to be a blessing. You go back to Genesis 12 and Abraham, and it started there, and then you see that all the way through Scripture, that we are blessed to be a blessing, that we're filled to be, filled, to be, to be poured out, right, to, to be given out to others. Um, so we give in proportion to what he's given us, right? Like Jesus gave his life. He went to the cross for me. And so I lay down my, my life in response that I give of myself to that same extent. Which brings us to the question today in this uh, conversation of ownership. Ownership. Like, who owns me? Who owns my stuff? <laughs> right? My talents. My abilities. My car my house, my bank account, uh, my kids, my life, my marriage, my motorcycle. That's a hard one for me to... I love my motorcycle. (laughs) Scripture teaches that all we are and all we have belong to God. In Leviticus 25.55, something's wrong with this thing. It's cutting in and out, isn't it? in Leviticus 25:55 it says this about the people of God it says for the Israelites belong to me as servants they are my servants whom i brought up out of egypt he says i am the lord your god in revelations 5:9 and 10 it says uh, in speaking about the person and the work of Jesus Christ it says you, speaking about Jesus, you are worthy to take 
scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God. Now listen to that language. You purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. All right. (laughs) Something's going on. Uh, You have made them to be a kingdom of priests Uh, a, a kingdom and priest to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. In 1 Corinthians 6, it says this, you are not your own, you were bought with a price. Same language, purchased, bought with a price, right? In Romans 6.18, it says, uh, it speaks about uh, our allegiance. It says you have been set free from sin been unshackled from something else, but you have become slaves to righteousness. You've attached yourself some other place. And that is a mirror image of Pharaoh and Israel's slavery. You remember in Egypt, God rescued Israel right out of Egypt, took them out, right? And their status as slaves then transferred to God. God didn't open the doors and say, ah, go you know, live your lives willy-nilly, do whatever you want, you know, see you in 40, 50, 60 years, whatever. He said, no, your, your status has transferred to me. You belong to me. I purchased you. We are God's possession. Language is important. And in the language of the, uh, the first century Greco-Roman world, a slave was considered to be a living tool of the master, property, of the master. And when the original's readers came across this language, this slavery language, uh, there was no mistaking in their mind what it all meant. They did not have, they weren't cloudy. It wasn't like there wasn't a question. They knew exactly what it all meant. Whatever you yield yourself to becomes your master, right? The Lord is God in all senses of the word in my life. Now, that would have, uh, they would have understood, they would have understood the word slave as being a bondservant. A person who willingly submitted themselves as slave to another person, right? Maybe people who were working off debt and it was, you know, sort of a way to, to get ahead in the world, or, or they, they were coming from a line of bondservants. That's just the way they lived their lives as a family line or whatever. But we mustn't confuse this idea of bondservants and slavery in American history. Slavery, they're not the same. Slavery, slavery in American history was absolutely wicked and oppressive and evil, right? But a bondservant, in, in this context, willingly submitted themselves to the master, And they enjoyed many benefits of the master's household. Many, many, many benefits. Bond servants were often treated very, very well. And in certain cases, they enjoyed elevated status in society. They had a lot of power in some cases. And it's sort of an ancient ancient system of really caring for people, things like that. It's a fitting illustration, too, that before Christ, I willingly submitted myself to sin. But sin is, ah, this is driving me crazy. Sin is a tyrannical master, right? It's a tyrannical master. It never really delivers what it's promising. 
although we tend to believe it, even when we know that to be a truth. Um, I transfer my allegiance to Jesus. A master who willingly gave his life to buy my freedom. That's a different kind of a master. Which drives me to willingly give my life to him in all ways. Jesus isn't a tyrannical master, right? He brings freedom from bondage. Freedom from bondage. And that's why Paul writes in Galatians 5.1, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Sin as master depletes. Jesus as master builds up, gives life. And that's what we've transferred ourselves to. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So death to self, right? Laying down my life, alive to God, though, in Christ Jesus, being reborn. That's what baptism is, right? We're, we, we go down in the water and we come back up, showing that we've, been, we've died to our sinful self and we're, we're living in Christ now. In Jesus, we are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come, right? That is scripture. We've passed from death to sin to life in Christ. We've shifted our allegiance And we have a new master. According to scripture, we are are the willing bondservants of Jesus. That's what we are. And in that bondservant-master relationship, we must acknowledge that the master owns everything about me. The bondservant enjoys the benefits of the master's belongings and financial covering. The bondservant is entrusted with certain items and monies to steward and oversee. But the master ultimately owns everything. Everything. The servant stewards what is the master's as reflected in the story of Adam and Eve from the very beginning. God stuck them in the, the garden and said, here, take care of all this for me. Right? That's how we've always been created. We are God's creation and he is our God. Therefore, in speaking of Romans 15, 13 and filling and overflow and good stuff like that, it brings us to the very important subject again today, one which we brought up, uh, which, which is brought up more, more times than, or more times than any other in scripture, the spiritual nature of money. Money, right? Something like you don't really really want to talk about in church sometimes. And it's said that, you know, fools rush in where wise men fear to tread. But there's really, in this matter, fear is unfounded because we need to talk, you know, boldly and openly and unapologetically in church about our finances. We really do. In full trust and assurance that 6-8 and its leadership is not in the business of misusing finances. We may not make the perfect decisions all the time, but we do a pretty good job and our heart is in the right place in this stuff, right? See, fear has gestated in the stories of those, those uh, few out there who've misused the funds of the kingdom of God for personal gain. Sort of like good priests in the world whose 
you know, in the Catholic Church whose commission has been tainted by a number of very unscrupulous men. You used to be able to say a few, but it's, as a matter of fact, it's a number, right? And that's a shame. The church resides under a cloud of suspicion sometimes uh, in the area of money, given a handful of, you know, dishonest televangelists. As bond servants of Christ, all of us are, right? Our finances overflow to serve the king. They really do. We're not televangelists out there looking to scam anyone into giving their life, you know, their life inheritance so we can fly around on private jets and build our own little empires and all that stuff. That's not what we're about. Nobody in this room has that kind of a desire. We speak the, the inclusive language of we, right? We together, the local church is a family of faith, sharing re- resources for kingdom purposes of building the kingdom of God. And I ask you again, you know, like if your hackles raise at the mention of money in church, I ask you just one more time just to set aside those, um, those emotions, just set it aside and listen carefully because we can, it is possible actually to have a very candid conversation couched in trust and marked with purpose in this arena. We really can. And what we'll find is that we have a great opportunity before us in our lives you know, to participate in the kingdom of God through our desire to overflow financially and being generous, loving, giving people in this world. John Wimber, one of the original founders, and, uh, you know, some people think he started it. I don't think he actually started the vineyard, but uh, he was one of the original guys. Once wrote, 12 of Jesus' 38 parables had to do with money, as did one-sixth of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's now clear to me pastors have a responsibility to preach and teach about money, for Christians can't grow to maturity until their hearts and minds are conformed to the Scripture on the use of their money. We usually don't think of money as a spiritual issue. It is, very much it. Money's uh, the one subject which, com- which comes up more in scripture, more times in scripture than any other. It's an important topic with far-reaching implications on our spiritual formation as people. It really does. Billy Graham once said, "If a person gets his attitude towards money straight, it will help straighten out almost every other area in his life or her life." I agree. I agree. That's why. Albert's running the financial peace class on Monday nights here. You know, if you still want to get involved, I think you could still probably get involved. Uh, Just talk to Albert. Um, But it's important to get our minds straight around this, right? Money promises everything it can't deliver, doesn't it, right? It can't save. It can't give purpose. It can't bring happiness. Now, it can help. I didn't say it can't help. But it can't ultimately supply that, right? Jesus urged us to have a proper outlook on money. In Matthew 6, it says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There your heart will be also. See how your money is tied to your heart? Where is your heart? What does it serve? What's your treasure? Is it really Jesus? 
and his purposes in this world, right? Because overflow originates from the heart. What's in my heart overflows from within me out to you. So it's a question of ownership. It really is. What fills me is the same question of what owns me, what possesses me, right? Because Jesus said in reference to money in Matthew 6, 24, he said, no one can serve two masters. It's impossible. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. It's the truth. It's just a simple axiom of life. You can't serve two things, right? People are either consumed with the love of money or they are consumed with the love of God. Worrying about your future all the time, worrying about your place in life all the time, you know, all this kind of stuff. Money is not bad in and of itself. It's a spiritual matter. It's a tool of the kingdom which mustn't be allowed to become king in my life itself, Right? A spiritual tool in the hand of the steward, the bondservant, for the sake of the master's bidding in the world. So I can't tell you what to do with your money. I can, I can only tell you how to regard money in light of your personal relationship with Jesus. We speak of, of, of ownership in order to view money and wealth for what it truly is which leads to wise choices with the resources of God that, that he has entrusted to us, that he's, that he's uh, I was thinking in Indonesian, sorry, deep, deep. Um, put, I don't know, I can't, I can't translate right now. Uh, but when we're, I'm, I'm in a weird mood this morning, aren't I? I really am, sorry. But, um, but, you know, what he's given to us to watch over and to care for, when we're filled with Jesus... When we're absolutely filled with Jesus, generosity naturally wells up within us. It overflows from within us. And our material and our financial resources as overflow of gratitude towards Jesus to, to see the kingdom of God advance through, uh, through us out to the nations, which is our calling, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Martin Luther said every Christian needs two conversions, one for the soul and the other for his pocketbook. Isn't that true? I mean, I, how many Christians do I talk to, and I, myself included, where you, 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 get, you know Jesus, you know, oh, he saved me from my sins, you, you give your life to Christ, and a few years into it, you're like, wait a minute, he wants, I got to like tithe, he wants my money, you know, like, oh my goodness, like that's, that's a hurdle for a lot of people. It really is a big hurdle. It's a constant ongoing awakening for us that, that we are actually in relationship with God and that we're not him, <laughs> right? In our early walk of faith, you know, we may look at this relationship simplistically and we might actually compartmentalize things. Jesus saved me in a box over here, right? I'm all safe. He saved me now. Now I live my life on my own terms, you know, doing what I want until he comes back in a box over on the other side. We may not regard our relationship with Jesus to have any bearing on our finances or our sexual purity or where we live, or our career choices, and I could keep going, right? Yet, 
as spiritual maturity sets in, we realize that God, God owns all of me. All of me. And, he's, and it's safe. It's a safe thing that he owns all of me. Everything I am, everything I do, everything I think is his. Everything I own is his. Mature Christians willingly then and gladly offer it all up to him as a living sacrifice. Romans 12, 1 and 2. As it says in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. Sort of in this tug, give and take with the Lord in conversation with the Lord, right? Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, that doesn't as much have as much to do with your emotions as you might think it would, right? Like, like I've heard people say, well, I, like it was a struggle for me, so I just didn't give it because of this verse. No, 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 no. Actually, you can choose to be obedient, and, and you can choose to say, Lord, I'm feeling something here. Change my feelings. Let this be a practice for me to understand how good you are and what you're going to do with my resources, right? That's not just a verse, <laughs> by the way, but used by unscrupulous religious leaders to bilk the masses of their money. Like us pastors, whenever that, that verse is quoted, we're all just like a little bit like, oh, they're going to think I'm just coming after their money, right? It's just like it's been used that way, right? right? But it is really, it's a spiritual reality that we freely and cheerfully give to God what's already his in the first place in gratitude of what he's already done for us and what he's already entrusted with us. There's a different way of looking at that, right? The, lo- the, the, the longer we walk with Jesus, the deeper we walk with Jesus, the more we learn verses like 1433, focus, Luke 14.33, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. We've made our, 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 our Christian life a little bit too ethereal, a little bit too just spiritual or just intellectual. I think this encompasses everything to our physical reality, to the inner being of my soul. My motorcycle belongs to Jesus. Maybe I shouldn't ride it so fast, right? <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't be so irresponsible with it. There's no in-between in the kingdom of God. There's really not. Now, God is patient, as we, patient with us as we learn these things, but there really is no in-between in the kingdom of God, not at all. You know, you're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to righteousness. You're, you're filled with Jesus. I'm all in, including my finances, my sexuality, my career, my calling, the way I speak, how I think, what I, how I treat you, and, and I don't always do it well. We all know that, et cetera, and so on and so forth. There are some very sober warnings about money in Scripture, like 1 Timothy 6, 9, and 10. It says, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and, strap and, and a trap into many, and, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into, a ruin, into ruin and destruction. I can't speak. Blah, blah, blah. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs, and that's sad. 
Remember, 40% of our choices leads to happiness, right? Make good choices about your money, man, life will be a little bit easier, right? Sobering commands as well are, are here. First Timothy 6.17, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to, be, to, to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. There's nothing wrong with being rich. It says it in Scripture. But to put your hope in it is the problem, right? Notice that last phrase too there, for our enjoyment. God's not a big old killjoy in the sky. He's not trying to take everything away from us and make us austere and, you know, a life hard for us because that's the best thing for us. No, God brings life. Now, some of all this stuff, some of this stuff may be difficult for us to hear. We, we strive, you know, to address the heart in our preaching and our teaching here in order to change the way that we think, to, to conform our thoughts to, 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 the, to the scriptures, to what God says is true about life. And some of that teaching might fly in the very face of how we've all been brought up. But we do need to conform our thoughts on money to Scripture to understand that we are literally bondservants of Jesus. That God owns everything. That There's no compartmentalization of my life, right? No half in, no half out. God doesn't own a tenth of my finances. It's all His. And he's graciously letting me use it and enjoy it. Jesus teaches us in Matthew 25, the parable of the talents, uh, right? Servants are given the master's money in that, in that story to steward while he's away, if you remember that, that story. And it's a, pa- a parable that is clearly teaching that we steward God's resources now. Therefore, the, the idea that we possess anything, that anything is mine is an absolute deception the question is do we invest what's been entrusted us to benefit the cause of christ in the world the name of god in this world right or do we squander it or do we just merely sit on it waiting for him to return john wesley said this is good advice make all you can save all you can give all you can <laughs> make all you can, save all you can, give all you can. That's great advice. We shouldn't be ashamed of proper ambition to make a good living for our families. Scripture pushes us in this way, doesn't it? It, it pushes us in the way of diligence and hard work and, and integrity in the issues of, uh, of accruing wealth and 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 you know, providing for others. There, there are no get-rich schemes in, in Scripture. We know that. I remember a friend of mine, this is like, uh, gosh, this is 20 years ago, whatever, um, calling me in Indonesia and asking me, oh my gosh, it might be like even farther back. I am getting old. But, uh, and this is when the scam was just starting. You, you'll know the scam as soon as I say it. But he said, hey, this guy just emailed me from Africa and said that if I give him my bank account number, he'll, he'll put a, a million dollars in it and I can keep 20%. And I'm like, dude, that's not going to work. He's like, no way that's going to happen, right? Well, he said he was a prince. I'm like, you know, it was just weird. You know, you know that scam. We've all gotten that email. Scripture warns us, though, that if it looks too good to be true, it probably is. 
Very few win the lottery in life, and those who do are often ruined by it. A year or two years later, they're you know, sitting in the poorhouse because they've just spent it willy-nilly. They've done some really bad things with it. The way to secure wealth is through diligence and honesty and integrity and long-standing good hard work. That's the best way to do it. Get a job, keep a job, right? Go to work every day, do your job. You know, one of the biggest things I would say that I tell my kids right now is if you can be reliable, you are better off in the job market than 95% of the people out there. Isn't that true? If you could just show up on time and leave at, at the end of the day, at the time that you're supposed to leave, not before it, and if you can just, if they say do this and you get it done in a timely manner, amen, I see Joseph. Joseph's like, oh, thank God, say that, say that again. He's a business owner. We, business owners know that. I owned two of them when I, before I was a pastor. I, yeah, just having people that are reliable is, is, a, is an incredible blessing. Scripture also urges us to save as well, right? Proverbs chapter 13, verse 22 says, a good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children, right? His grandchildren. Proverbs 6, 6 says, go to the ant, you sluggard. <laughs> Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander or overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. Twenty-one twenty. in the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil. They save, but a foolish man devours all he has. Just kind of goes through it quickly. You know, sometimes life, we're at, the, we're at the whim of life, right? Sometimes life doesn't afford us the opportunity to save for the future, for future and family. You know, some people in this world are in very difficult situations where th- their poverty is brought on them. So these are truths, right? They're axioms, but they're not indicative of every situation. We've got to understand that. We are at the whim of volatile economies and governments, and however we are, when we can, urged to plan wisely and save as best we can. However, Jesus also urges us, on the flip side of this, to guard against hoarding. In Luke 12, 15, he says, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. There's a reason why that show was on or whatever it was on. Like American culture, hoarders. Oh, my gosh. You ever watch that? It's like their bathroom floor eventually gives way because they just got so much stuff piled on it. That's nasty, man. Like how do you live like that, right? But that is indicative of a life without God really is. He says, uh, he proceeds also to tell the story of, uh, of a man who's hoarding his wealth. You remember this story? But he dies in the midst of that obsession. And Jesus ends by saying, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. So yes, we're supposed to save, but it goes over a line into hoarding at some point when we're not focused our, our heart on, on, on Christ. Scripture also urges us to give all that we can, right? John Wimber wrote it this way. He says, so where does God tell us first to invest our money or his money? In the kingdom of God, in tithes and alms. And alms are sacrifices uh, beyond tithes. It's like you give your 10% as a tithe to the church, the local church, but above that you, you give alms, right? You, you know, 
Like I, I, I give certain things throughout the year if like one-time, one-off things. Like if somebody is in need, I, I give them. But I, I give my tithe to 6-8, right? Um, he says, formerly I taught that a tithe was not necessarily 10%. This is when he was younger. And, uh, but I, I am convinced from Scripture that it is at least that and that it should be given to the local church. Christians need to understand from the Bible their responsibility to give generously to God's work. And I would agree with that. Unapologetically, I agree with that. It's good for us to give. It really is. God's people have always been instructed to give at least a tenth of their income, as we see in Leviticus 27.30, a tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. Given it back to, to, to the Lord for his use. That tithe or, or that tenth went to support the temple, right? The, the priesthood. It went to, support, to, to care for people and the overall work of the kingdom of God, right? In Matthew 20, 23, 23, Jesus rebukes the leaders for neglecting other things but only keeping up with the tithe, right? They, so they were paying their tithe, but they were neglecting everything else. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law, And Pharisees, you hypocrites, you give a tenth of your spices and mint and dill and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. So notice he states that we're not to neglect tithing, but should be, we should overflow uh, in, in, life of, uh, in the life of God uh, in all ways, to, to all people, in justice and love and mercy and care and, and all these things. And the local church is the avenue by which God's bringing the message of salvation to the world. Tithing is a spiritual issue practically tied to the ability of the local church to do the work of God in, in our communities. John Wimber um, went as far to say that we, we can give uh, that tenth to the local church bef- before anything else and, and anything outside the side of that is considered alms like you, you heard in that quote. And I, I agree with him. I really do. Never understood it. I've never understood why people give money to some other cause out there, but while they're local church, they never give a dime. It doesn't make any sense if you think about it. It's just not rational. It's not logical. Uh, it does. It's it's like it's like my daughter Matt needing needing a thousand dollars to go and do something, and like there's some other kid like in the next county that I just heard about, and I give them a thousand dollars, but not my daughter. It doesn't make any sense. Doesn't make any sense. Um, when we first started six eight, and we hadn't yet started passing the tithe box, a, you know, a young man came up to me and he said, "Man, it's great that you don't ask for money. I think that's so cool. That's really cool." He, he thought churches only cared about money and that they were always asking for money, um, and maybe they're always asking because people are never giving, right? When you're not giving, you got to ask. Maybe it would be nice if we didn't have to focus on that. People just gave, 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 and we could just focus on doing kingdom work, right? But he thought, you know, that churches were just, you know, in the business of making money and always asking for money. And he thought it was a nice that a church lived by faith and they never asked for money. And I proceeded to tell him, I burst his little bubble, and I said, uh, the only reason I haven't passed the tithe box is that I haven't opened the bank account yet, and I don't want to be sitting on all your money. 
I just don't want that responsibility. And I'm not really making fun of the guy, maybe a little bit, but it was a naive comment that he made. It really was. It really was. Churches are organizations with bills to pay, and they operate financially, and they expend resources on their communities and in areas of poverty and mission, and they have salaries for people uh, for, to care for. And com- comments such as his come from younger guys who, who've never had the financial responsibility of running any organization. When he gets older and he has to pay a mortgage, things will be different. He'll, 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 he'll speak differently because experience teaches us, doesn't it? We have no fear in approaching the conversation of money here at Sexa. No fear whatsoever. God calls us to speak unapologetically on the issue as Jesus did. We want to be very responsible with it though, right? Um, at eight, we never want our ministry to be hindered by a lack of funding. That would be a shame. It really would. If God wanted us to grow, but we were disobedient in giving to that growth, that would be a shame. In our history, we've had to pay our rent, and we've, had, we've paid salaries, and we've bought equipment, and we've paid other necessary bills, and we've helped out local families, both inside and outside of our church, uh, in, out there who have struggled, you know, that kind of thing. We've invested in local community partnerships, deepening relationships with them. We've put our money towards things. We've given money to the police association, the, the Narberth Ambulance, the Ardmore Ambulance, different things like that. Um, we've supported the halls over in Morocco and Sammy Zondervan training people, you know, to mobilizing people and training them to to go out to the least reached people, people groups of the earth to share the gospel with people. We continually right now support the ongoing work in Lebanon and Syria. We actually uh, provide a salary for one worker over there um, for evangelists and church planters you know, to, to do their work among uh, Muslim refugees and, and all that kind of stuff. We've invested money in this building uh, and in other buildings that we've met in as a thank you to uh, to show our care and our love and our appreciation for our neighbors and because we've needed to, to make things better. Uh, we've learned, um, we've, we've trained leadership. Um, we've, we've refreshed them with parties and meals sometimes because they need it and they need to feel loved and cared for. We've put on community parties and, and luncheons which have increased relationships with people out there and, we've, and have opened doors for us to share the gospel of Christ with people. We've welcomed our, our, our newcomers sometimes with meals and fun events. Uh, we've developed and implemented retreats, the men's and women's retreats, which we just, we just went on a couple months ago, and we've seen, we've seen really uh, great, powerful life change as a result of those things. And we want to keep doing these things and more, right? We are in the process, as I said earlier, of revamping our, our lease to include this first floor right below our feet right now of this building so that we can uh, accommodate a growing church and our children's ministry and have our kids closer and more active in what we do and all that kind of stuff. We want to have a visible, physical footprint on the Eastern Main Line. We want people to know where we are. We want them to know how to come and hear about Jesus. And we want to be a part of the community so to be able to tell them about Jesus. And we need to be wise to save for the future and build reserves for the rainy day when we might have to rent something or renovate something or buy a larger place or whatever we have to do to develop people and share the gospel 
uh, and, and care for those in need, in need within our ranks and outside in the community as well. And we seek good counsel from uh, other churches as you know, we listen to them and what they've done in their financial decision-making process. We, we talk to the Vineyard USA and, 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 and other educated voices in these areas. Kim and I sat with Bubba Justice, a great name, right? Bubba, that's actually a person. Bubba Justice, who is the financial guy for the Vineyard USA. We, we sat with him just a couple months ago. We got his wise counsel. What a great guy he is. That's so knowledgeable, right? Because church business is a little different than business business. You know, there's, it, it, and, and you, your things change as you grow and you get bigger and there's lots to learn and think about. And so we got his wise counsel. I've attended a church growth conference recently and, and I'm on weekly phone calls while, you know, which specifically address the challenges of a growing church as such as ours. And we're moving ahead and things are changing and transitioning to new wonderful things. And the challenge for us in all of that as, as individuals and as, as a body is to think hard about ownership. Ownership, right? Consider, go home and consider your heart and if it joyfully overflows in order to glorify God in all ways in your life, not just financially, in all ways. Are we growing as good stewards of what he has entrusted to us. And that's our time, talent, and treasure. Is my, ta- is my time really given to Jesus? Or do I watch a lot of Netflix? It's, it's something to think about. I struggle with this. I struggle with this. Is there something I could be doing for the kingdom of God? Not in any way. But is that, is that joy and that passion and that hope as I get closer and deeper in Christ overflowing in me? out to you and out to this community and out to all the other people around us. And that has to do with our resources, all of our resources. I'll shut up. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you are King of kings and Lord of lords, that you own it all, that you are God of all creation, that you love us, that you bless us to be a blessing. You... In that whole conversation, Lord Jesus, you give us purpose. I I pray that you would loosen our grip on our things of life, that you would loosen our grip, that we would hold them with open palms, understanding that our dad in heaven, our daddy in heaven can take and give and, and shift things around however you see fit. And you're not doing that to hurt us or make things austere for us, but you're actually bringing us life in that whole conversation. We want to trust you with everything that we are and have and do and think and say and believe and everything else. We want to hand everything we are over to you because we know that the God that created this world is the best one to manage our lives. We thank you for that.